You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. What, what I want to do today is I want us to understand that Christmas launches us into the year in a way where we want to just not talk about why we celebrate Christmas, but we want to talk about the implications of what Christmas means on a social and theological level. And so we're going to be doing that over the next few weeks. We enter 2020 differently than the world is entering 2020. This is the first week in the year for most people. This is the sixth week in the year for the church. This is our sixth week. And what we're doing is we're entering the secular year with the news that born to you this day in the city of David is a savior. And you will find him wrapped in swaddling cloths because he's an infant. This is the most odd and unique announcement for good news and a king. But here's what we have to understand. Jesus is what God is like. You've heard me say this, and I will continue to say it. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus is how we understand God. So if God is God and he doesn't change, then that means what God ever does, he always does. So if God at the beginning of the Bible is a creator, then that means he's always creating. And if God at the end of the gospel is a redeemer, then that means he's always redeeming, which means his creating is redeeming, and his redeeming is creating. This is why Jesus can say after the cross, behold, I make all things new, because his redemption is creation, and his creation is redemption. So when God created Adam, he redeemed him. We have to understand the gravity of that. Adam's sin was already redeemed when Adam was created. This is how God loves people. This is how we ought to love people. But the other, just zipped right off the back wall. I caught it, put it back in my pocket. I'll throw it again another time. When Adam sinned, God already redeemed him by creating him. Do we love people that way? You can go home now. There's no way any of us can do that. So anything I say after this is just going to pile on to what we can't do. I mean, that is something we need to focus on. But because that seems impossible, which is why it actually doesn't excite us because we know it's an impossibility. The other thing about God is that everything he does is redemption, which means when he's born as an infant and he grows into an adult, growth is part of how he redeems us. Which means that our growth, not our success... Our growth is part of how we redeem the world around us. Not our final, when we finally get there and we finally succeed, our trajectory. So when I used to have a real foul mouth, and now this year I just have a foul one, not a real foul one, that trajectory is part of how we're redeeming the world around us. Moving in the right direction is redemption. Otherwise, God would have shown up like Adam as a fully grown man. But he didn't. He showed up better than Adam. He began to redeem us at conception all the way to death. So there's not a part of our life that isn't touched by the redemption of God, which means there's not a part of our life that can't participate in the redemption of God for the world. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling cloths. The phrase I felt that the Spirit impressed upon me as we 
fly through the Christmas season into the implications of the Christmas season is joy far as the curse is found. Joy far as the curse is found because we generally associate joy where the curse isn't found. Joy is where things are easy. Joy is where things are finally put back together again. Joy is where things are working out. Joy is when there's money in the bank. Joy is when there's health in my bones. Joy is when the relationship is thriving. Joy is when we're all on the same page at work. Joy is when, you know, whatever, people are getting laid out left and right at church and we know the Holy Spirit showing up. That's where joy is. But joy, far as the curse is found, is an altogether different view of joy, but an altogether more freeing one, because that means wherever you are and however you are, joy could be yours right now. Wherever there's curse, there's joy to redeem curse. And one of the words that was spoken this morning was, don't let little foxes steal your joy. We can't create the kind of joy that Christ gives. Don't let any pastor fool you. You cannot yell loud enough, read the Bible enough, tithe enough, give enough, dress up enough, smile enough, not beat your kids enough. You can't do all those things enough to have joy. But what you can do is you can take the joy that only God can give you and you can allow other things in to kind of chomp at it. So we're not capable of creating it. We are very capable of letting it get picked away at. And it is a don't let this happen thing. Jesus says, stay awake. Keep your guard up. Understand that things are coming when you least expect them to come. Not just Jesus, but how many have been surprised by a trial once or twice in your life? How many have said, I cannot believe so-and-so just said that? All of our expressions of, I didn't see this coming, are why we need to stay awake, are why we need to keep our guard up. Because I believe that this church is called to be the kind of church that redeems the world with joy that redeems the world with celebration, that redeems the world with being able to celebrate the good and what others can't see in the rubble. We talked about it last week. We have gold on the cross because gold is the first gift that was given to Jesus as an infant, and it's an amazing gift because gold is only given to kings, and the fact that wise men could see kingship in an infant means that the church should be able to see gold in the rubble of other people's lives before they even know themselves that there's gold in there. We can't be full of ourselves and see the gold in other people's lives. Because the only gold you'll see in somebody else's life, if you're full of yourself, is the gold that can benefit you in their life. Again, anytime you want to go home after these points, you can. I mean, I'm just kidding. If you do, I'll judge you. But that's besides the point. Like, I just want you to. I feel. And I'm, I'm not, I, I'm serious about this. This isn't a joke. It's, I'm going to say it funny, but it's not a joke. Every year, pastors work tirelessly somewhere around October, November to say, what is our vision for next year? And as we're raising a three-year-old, we realize that we have to redirect Sophia all the time. Any parents who've parented young kids understand redirection, how annoying it could be? I said, clean your room. I said, clean your room. I don't care if it's cold outside. That has nothing to do with this. Clean your room. Clean your room. I know mommy has nice shoes. Clean your room. How come you only say mommy has nice shoes? Now I'm distracted. Now Jacqueline has to redirect me because I'm like, why, why do you always call out mommy's nice shoes and never mind? Oh, because my shoes aren't nice? You're dead to me. I'm going to go mess your room up now so you can have to clean it. So mommy yells at you, but she will never know that I mess your room because you can't tell her yet. You know what I'm saying? 
Is that a familiar story in anybody's house? Age-old tale, right? Every time a pastor has to have a new vision every year, he or she is a toddler. If God has to redirect me every single year, it's because I'm not doing something right. We don't need a new vision. Our vision is living life the way Christ meant it to be, and all that means is we're living life like Jesus as we learn about Jesus. I don't, we don't need anything else. I don't need to rhyme the year with God's vision and make the zeros look like eyes. And it's, we're trying to be like Jesus. Why is that not enough? What I do believe is in that long, arduous, broad path of what it means to be like Jesus, I do believe each year God is going to say to every individual church, I need you to emphasize these things. Not that you're not always doing them, but you need to emphasize this this year. This is what families do. Every year, we all take a ledger of how last year went and how we want this year to go, and we don't say, hey, I have an idea. How about this year we try to love each other? That should always be the vision, but we might point out ways in which we failed to do it last year and we could do it better this year. Emphasis is adulthood. New vision every year is infancy. So I'm not going to come out with some clever idea for the year that we haven't heard. I'm not going to exhaust myself to try to tell us something we need to do differently. I want to point out some points of emphasis that I feel in my spirit along with the elders that we just need to focus on this year. Is that okay? It's, it's been there last year and the year before that and the year before that and the year before that and they'll be here all the following years but there's just going to be different points that we need to hone in on of the whole vision which is to be like Jesus. And please don't let anyone fool you. It doesn't need to be more than that. It doesn't need to be any more than that. What more could it be? So, two points of emphasis for this year. I feel in my gut that God wants to create in this church the capacity for the restoration of the family. Notice what I didn't say. I'm not standing here guaranteeing that we're going to have 200 souls by December 31st. That's God's business, not mine. I'm saying that God wants to create in us the capacity to see the restoration of the family. Why? Because family, both in your natural home and family from this house, returning to the Lord means responsibility for those of us who are here. Life changes when God's promises are fulfilled. You don't get to be the person you were when God's promise is fulfilled. You have to become an entirely different person. The mistake that Jacqueline and I made, and I'm sure most first-time parents make, is you kid yourself into thinking that you could keep the life you had before a child and somehow shove that into the life that you have now that you have a child. And real quick, you realize we need to, be, we need to have a different kind of marriage. We need to have a different kind of personhood because adding someone means different responsibilities. And so the church consistently prays for more souls and for family members to return and for people who are angry or bitter to come back. But do you know what angry and bitter people coming back means for us? It may mean we have to say we're sorry. How many saw 
the part in the first football game yesterday where the referee made that really, really terrible call when uh, the guy caught the ball in the end zone. This was amazing to me. Uh, a player caught the ball in the end zone and went to hand the ball to the referee. He was, it was a touchback. The referee goes like this. The guy throws the ball, and then the Buffalo Bills pick it up for a touchdown. The referee signals touchdown. Everyone goes nuts, including me. I don't even like either of the two teams. All I love is drama, and this was going to feed me all kinds of fun drama. The referee starts to say, listen to this. He starts to say, on the play, there was an illegal forward pass. He was about to say that the guy handing him the ball was an illegal pass. An extra referee that they have for playoff runs over to him and says, don't say anything. They all talk. And the referee says something gospel. After discussion with the other refs, we have determined that there wasn't a penalty on the field. Do you know how much guts it takes to make a confident call in front of 2.8 million people watching? say I needed to have a discussion with someone else, and upon that discussion, I got it wrong. There is no penalty. If we want people to come back, it might be that we say after discussion over these years, we realize we called foul when there was never a foul, and we're sorry. We might have to be able to do that. But I digress. Let's see what the Bible says. Fair? All right. The Bible... Malachi, you've heard me say this, we're leading up to this moment, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, the final verses of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Why? Because before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What is he saying? I'm going to hold back coming so that families, that parents and children and children and parents can be reunited with each other. Now watch this. Pretend there's no chapter divisions in your Bible at all. This is inexplicably amazing. And if it's only me, I'm a nerd, I'm a Bible nerd, I get it. You should be happy I am, as I've said before, but I hope you can enjoy this with me. If you just turn the page as if you're not turning from the Old to the New Testament, watch what happens. I will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Next verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Hold on a minute. What did we just read? I'm going to come and restore the hearts of children to their fathers. And what is the first verse in the New Testament? Watch how I'm going to do it. The genealogy, the father-sonness of Jesus Christ. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Er, stop. The whole opening to the gospel is saying he's already restoring sons and fathers. Why? Because we're going to give you a lineage of all the broken relationships of parents and children, and it's going to end with Jesus, the son of God. But right up here at the beginning, you have a clue into the hilarity of this genealogy. 
And Jacob, the father of Joseph and his brothers, is what it should say. Joseph did all right. He got betrayed, thrown into a well, sold as a slave, and then used his new power to save and redeem. Imagine that, people using power to save and redeem. He used his new power to save and redeem the ones who put him in the well. Why doesn't he show up in, he shows up in the genealogy, but he doesn't show up by name. He's counted in with the rest of the transgressors. Why does Judah show up? Because the restoration of the family happens when the family focuses on praising and worshiping more than living right. If everything we do is about living right, we have a Christian contradiction for the ages. How many have heard Christians say, we need to live right? Okay, how many believe we need to live right? You all better put your hands up, otherwise I quit. I quit the job. But how many have also heard Christians say, we're sinners. There's none who does good, not even one. Oh, such a worm as I. So if both of these things are true, and as first importance, we need to live right in order to bring restoration into the earth. The problem is we need to live right, but we can't live right. I need to move this back because I walk around too much, and I'm going to knock that over. We need to live right, but we can't live right. So if living right means that we can restore things, then how else could we be but self-righteous at that point? I brought restoration because I got it right. That's the Pharisees. What does the Holy Spirit do here? The Holy Spirit says, Judah, you're the one that's going to be named in this restoration plan of fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and parents and children. Why? Because there's something unique about the person who can praise when they live right and when they don't. The person who can praise when they're healthy and when they're sick. The person who can praise when there's money in the bank and when there's not. There's something about the person who praises no matter what that brings the world to come into the present. Because people living right and everybody celebrating that, the world could do that just fine and so can we. But praising when things go wrong, not everybody can. I think it's funny that Judah shows up in the narrative because when the brothers were starting to argue and realize we're in trouble, this is... Joseph, or we're not sure, like the guilt is coming upon us. Uh, This guy somehow by divination knows that we murdered our brother. Every brother tries to talk to him, and Joseph is like playing them like crazy. Go back uh, and put this cup in Benjamin's sack, and then go yell at them for it, and bring them back, and tell them we're going to kill him, and go get the father. He's messing with them until Judah approaches him. When Judah approaches Joseph, hear me. The best arguments couldn't move Joseph. Repenting couldn't move Joseph. But when praise touched Joseph's ears, it said that he couldn't even control himself. His heart grew warm, his compassion deepened, and he had to run out of the room because he, knew, he was overwhelmed with love for his brothers. There's something about being a people of praise that moves the heart of God more than great living does. Because great living with no praise isn't right living anyhow. 
this is how we create in ourselves the capacity to receive people back that have been broken off or people who are not walking with the Lord, bringing them back, is we have to be the kind of people who invite them into praise before we invite them into behavior modification. Do you understand how many people have been hurt and dented by this behavior first, love second doctrine? No one's dis- There are people in the room right now who are hearing me say behavior doesn't matter. Good for you. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying behavior doesn't matter if love doesn't matter first. Love has to matter first. If love isn't first, behavior will not sustain itself because behavior never sustains itself. How many here know a person? Behavior doesn't sustain itself. Love sustains bad behavior. If it didn't, throw out the whole book of Ephesians that we're about to teach. For while you were still sinners, not when God waited for you to look right. Love has to come so behavior even has a chance. And so that behavior can be pointed in the right direction. Behavior for behavior's sake is legalism. Behavior as worship is different. It's righteous. It's holy. Jesus says, Matthew 11, verse 13 and 14. So it says, Elijah must come first. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, 13, 14, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is Elijah who is to come. So Elijah is going to be sent to restore the hearts of children to their fathers, the hearts of children to their parents. And then Jesus says, John is Elijah. So then we have to look at John and say, what is it about John that makes him the forerunner for the restoration of the family? Do you see that? Elijah's going to come to restore the family. Jesus says John is Elijah. So the question is, what does Elijah look like? And what is the first thing Elijah pronounces? Repent. You mean our children, right? And then the children are like, you mean our parents, right? No. You. Repent. When each party is baptized into the baptism of repentance, daily, daily, that is the beginning of the capacity to receive people back. The, the capacity for the family to be restored exists to the proportion that the family on each side is willing to repent first and not hear repentance on the other side, just repent because it's good and right. The temptation is not to repent. The temptation is to continue to be repentive when it's not met with repentance back. Jacqueline and I have a fight. I assume there's a chance I might be wrong. <laughs> so I say, Jacqueline, I'm really sorry about the way I just talked to you. And she's like, I forgive you, and walks away. And I'm like, like follow her. Like, wait, so you, you heard me say I'm sorry, right? Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. Where are we going? You, you anything? Anything you want to throw back this way? No? 
I'm, God, I'm trying. <laughs> Jacqueline, you heard, you know, the whole, we, we both fought, right? Were you there for both of us yelling at each other? So remember I said I'm sorry? Listen, if I'm going to say I'm sorry, then you need to say I'm sorry. Otherwise, I'm not going to say I'm sorry anymore. Ruined it. <clears throat> ruined it. Totally ruined. It was never repentance. It was manipulation, right? It was flattery. It wasn't when you can repent and walk away. That's the beginning of creating the capacity to have a relationship restored. When my repentance is predicated on you repenting back, it's not repentance, it's flattery, it's appeasement, it's manipulation, it's not I'm being sorry. If I'm really sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm David from Psalm 51, where I killed a guy and slept with his wife, and before I ever say sorry to them, I say, Father, against you and you only have I sinned. If I'm really sorry for sin, it's because I sinned against him, and he doesn't need to repent back. <laughs> So for my repentance to be anchored into something where I won't need it back for it to exist, I need to be sorry upwards first before vertical. So many words on these notes. I don't know if I want to say everything. Must have been in a bad mood when I wrote half of this. Probably just after that fight we had. Oh, we can't talk about pizza in January. John 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. I love this. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. When they asked John, who are you? His first comment is, I'm not the Christ. Again, what, is the dis what would make people feel safe coming back? When we don't act like we are their gift of salvation. John, the first thing he said is, I'm not the light. There's one greater than me. There's someone coming after me. My work is only going to matter when his work lays on top of it. That is the only way. When he lays his work down on my work, then there's a chance my work might look like something. But I am not the Christ. And when they finally say, well, who are you? He says, I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. When he even speaks of himself, he doesn't speak of what he says about himself. He speaks of what God said about him. He is not a self-promoter. And that's why it's in him for the capacity for the family to be restored. Because the family can only be restored when the party coming home doesn't feel like they're coming home to their Savior. They're coming home to experience their Savior with you. Remember what we said last week? We're always a people who need to look like we needed to be redeemed. When people come back here, we're not their savior. They come back here to join hands with us to celebrate the savior we all equally need. The older brother at home needed the father as much as the younger brother in the pig pen. Oh my God, Jesus, you told me to say this right? No? The older brother needs salvation as much as the younger brother does. Most of us are older brothers. We've been here the whole time. We want some younger brothers coming back, but we can't be mad when they come back and there's a celebration for them and the celebration has nothing to do with us. We should be the first ones to the party because we need to be there too. This brings me to the first fruit offering. Is this a pitch? Yes. And you all know it's not because we need the money, so just rebuke that right now. 
You don't have to give in it. Here's why I'm telling you why I'm going to give in it. Because we cannot be repentive. We cannot have joy if we're self-indulgent. And of all the ways that Jesus talks about how to rid yourself of indulgence, he says, you cannot serve God and money. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. He could have said that about anything. He said it about money. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So this year I felt that giving money in this first fruit offering, one thing you'll never hear me say is if you give money, God's going to give you back money. That is never true. He might, he might not. And if he does, it's not because of the offering. It's because he wanted to give you something. He's not manipulated. He's not a system. He's certainly not a slot machine. Fair? Felt like God said when you're willing to part with the thing that can treasurize your heart, it will give you the capacity to be patient. That's what I feel like he spoke over the first fruit offering this year is it will give us the capacity to be patient. I didn't give Ian a slide. I'm going to give you my definition of patience. I'll say it twice. Patience is the ability to restrain action until it is clear that something or someone has fully become itself. Patience is the ability to restrain action until it is clear that something or someone is fully itself. Should I say it again? One more time. Patience is the ability. To, I got annoyed that I needed to say it a third time. How ironic is that? <laughs> Week one, failed. Patience. It's the ability to read a definition slow enough for people to get it because you were too lazy to give it to Ian and put it on the screen. Patience is the ability to restrain action until it is clear that something or someone is fully itself. It works on both sides. When someone is grinding your gears, but you can know if you're slow and patient that it's not really them, it's the day they're having. This isn't really them it's what's going on with them. It's uncharacteristic of them. It's not usually like them. Then restraining action, the action that feels appropriate to the way they're grinding on you, should be held back because they're not being themselves. If you realize that someone is being themselves and it's grinding on you, then we need to speak the truth in love. But if the thing or the person is not yet itself, like we, we put in a, a DiGiorno last night, and I wanted to take it out raw. It hasn't fully become itself yet, Bill. You got to wait 18 more minutes, fatso, can you? I don't think I can. I'm like, I'm wondering why every oven has those little dots so you can't actually see what's in it. Why? I want to watch my food. Can I please watch my food? Oh, it's to protect your eyes or something. I don't care. My eyes suck anyway. I want to watch the food. I want to look at the food. It's not itself yet. 
And it works when we want to snap at somebody for being rude. But God in heaven, every time somebody does something in the world, people on social media especially celebrate like it's the greatest thing that ever happened or die like it's the worst thing that ever happened. And it happened 18 seconds ago. I've heard people say, I'm really praying for a new job. Hey, got called for an interview. Praise God, he came through. No, he did not. You got an interview. Hold back. (laughs) Wait. Part of the reason why we live in such disappointment is because we celebrate too early all the time. We're not patient when it comes to making a snotty remark, but we're also not patient when it comes to celebrating. God grew slowly for 30 years before he started his ministry to tell us, slow down, wait, if God was willing to wait for Jesus to fully become himself, how much more should we wait for pizza and toddlers to become their self? And all the other stuff that's more important. (laughs) Releasing money unclogs my heart from the little foxes that make my heart indulgent. And when those little foxes are gone, patience has space. If you are sitting there right now, listen to me. If you're disagreeing with it, but you're okay, I'm fine with that. You don't have to give in that offering. If you're mad that I just said that, I'm right. (laughs) It's unbelievably funny, but it's true. If you're okay, like you know why you disagree, I support you. I'm not telling you you have to. I'm saying that I felt that Jesus said you can't serve God and money, which means I'm either going to give God to money or I'm going to give money to God. What does giving God to money look like? Judas, for 30 pieces of silver, here's Jesus. I know I need to part with my treasure, especially at this time of the year when I'm more hyper-focused on it than almost any other time of the year. And I believe it can increase in us the capacity to have patience, which means we can receive younger brothers back into the fold because we're patient. Because guess what? That younger brother was probably still a jerk when he came back. Well, how do you know that? The Bible doesn't say it. I know you. I know me. I know every person I've ever met. I've been around people who get radically saved. And then, like, they're not, they're saved. (laughs) I love you so much, Dan. I love you so much. You have no idea. All right, real fast. Emphasis two. Emphasis one, I feel like God wants to restore our natural families and the Salem family specifically. I'm talking housekeeping stuff. I believe that there are people in your life that are not walking with the Lord, who have stopped walking with the Lord, that God wants to bring back to the Lord, but it's going to be when we have the capacity to receive them back and live differently because of it. Emphasis two, real fast. I feel in my gut, I use the word gut twice in this message. I feel in my gut, That the revolution began when Jesus rallied the weak and the broken among him. The people who could never give Jesus anything of value back besides themselves. Here's a verse of emphasis for us this year. Psalm 82, verses 1 through 4. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly? And show partiality to the wicked. 
Give justice to the weak. These are our verses. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. What couldn't stop the revolution of Jesus is Jesus exciting and accepting the people that everybody else forgot about. They couldn't stop that. When John... This is an amazing tie-in. When John goes to prison, when Elijah, the New Testament Elijah, goes to prison and says, are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus says, here's how you're going to tell him that I'm the one. Go tell John, everybody's portfolio is doing quite well and the stock market is doing amazing. Nope. He says, go and tell John that the people at the bottom have hope today. And then John will know that the hearts of children are about to be restored to their father. If we cater to the ones that can give us something back, even a good time. Like there are people that I know if I'm with you, I'm going to have a better time than people, other people. (laughs) If only I'm around people that are easy for me socially to be around, that can benefit the church, that will not make me have to really guard myself too much. There's people in this room that I've been friends with you long before I became the pastor, and I trust you so much that I can be around you and be be myself and not have to say I'm on right now. It's easier for me to be around those people. But if I'm only around those people, then that means I'm investing, not giving. I'm saying they seem like good soil for return. The return is going to be social comfort. Their turn is going to be, I don't have to work really hard. Their turn is going to be, I'm going to enjoy myself. Their turn is going to be, they volunteer like crazy. This is the kind of person who gives and volunteers and does all these things. We need to keep hanging out with them and, and just really love the ones who are loving us. Wait, that's not exactly what Jesus said, though. And when I say the poor, the destitute, the weak, the fatherless, the immediate people that come into your mind, just don't trust that right away. There's a lot of kinds of neediness. There's a lot of kinds of destitute. The people that we criticize the most, that seem to be affluent, that seem to have it going on, and we criticize them the most, if we're really right about our criticism of people, then maybe they are spiritually needy and destitute. See, one of the things I've been confronted with in my life is God saying, what if your opinion is right? Which... I think God does because that got my attention. You mean I might be right? Go ahead. Keep talking. You keep criticizing this person. You keep saying that they're using the influence they have in the community the wrong way. You keep saying that they're arrogant. You keep saying that, you know, they have a lot of followers in the community, but they keep using it the wrong way. What if your opinion's right? I'm like, thank God then, right? Yay. You guys are like, well, if you're right, then that means they're broken and needy, which means you shouldn't stay away from them. You should go to them. Because you should be going to the ones that are broken. If you're wrong, shut up about them. If you're right, realize that maybe I put you in their life for a reason. And so we take up our cross and follow him because that is the only way to be Christian. So who are the needy? Who are the broken? Who are the fatherless? I want this year at Salem to be a year where God creates in us the soil rich enough to develop prison ministry. 
I watched a hilarious debate unfold on Twitter where somebody I know was, and you guys will just know I'm a big fan of Dr. Chris Green. I don't care, whatever. I'm a fan of his. And this, Chris says, we need to be visiting the prisoners. And this other person jumps in and says, Chris, you know, John didn't go, uh, Jesus didn't go visit John in prison. And I'm like, you should not have done that because now you just made it bad for all of us. Chris goes, yes, he did. I'm like, Chris, uh, I don't think he did. I, I know you know the Bible pretty well, but he didn't. I was like, no, no, he, he went and visited him. And I'm sitting there like, this dude should not have said that. And Chris said, Jesus sent disciples to John and said, go and tell him. Sending us is how Jesus visit, visits people in prison. I was like, Chris, I'm happy you said that and also kind of mad because now we got to get a prison ministry going at Salem because we haven't visited John in prison. I want this to be the year where God creates in us. Listen to me, the soil. If somebody is looking tomorrow for a thriving prison ministry, it's probably not going to happen. But what needs to shift and change and grow in this church as an institution and this church as the comprising of individuals? for us to want to not only start something, but be the ones to say, I'll do it, and then be the ones to say, I'll help them do it, and then be the ones to say, if they struggle, I'll also help them do it, and then maybe in a year or two years actually have a thriving prison ministry. But this year is the year where the soil gets cultivated for us to be able to do that. Again, anything that starts fast can end fast. Second, second soil in the parable of the sowers. It can grow fast and it can get destroyed fast. We want things to grow slow so they can last a long time. It's not about programs. It's about the mandate that Jesus said, John, this is how you'll know I've showed up. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame work, and all by the way, prisoners, John, are having the gospel preached to them. I want things like food pantries, homeless shelter support, and then I want us to do better with maybe the, the most least of these of all, and that is our children. When it comes to saying who the least of these are, generally speaking, we either think of adults who are in need or children who are like the images of children we see, you know, in, in feed the children kind of stuff. But our healthy children that are downstairs right now are the least of these. Why? Because they can't do anything for themselves. Children are the ultimate least of these. And what we're doing downstairs, first of all, I want to say that Julian Gums and Elizabeth Saldana do a bang-up job downstairs for our kids. An amazing job. Want to know how I know that they do an amazing job and this isn't an omen, I don't believe in that kind of stuff, because we never hear about them. Something goes wrong with kids, you hear about it. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they keep it moving down there. They do a really good job. The kids are safe. They're protected. And now we're working on curriculum with them because we want what we say up here to be what they're hearing downstairs. We want the themes up here to be the themes that they're hearing downstairs. Why? So when moms and dads and children sit at a set table... Is Danielle Dongo in the room? I'm going to brag on you one more time. I'm going to go along today. Don't care. I want to brag on Danielle one more time. Danielle 
and Betty uh, Matafari have started the uh, Mother's Ministry to Salem, and they're doing a wonderful job. I want to brag on something Danielle said to me, because this is one of the best, most theological revelations I've ever heard in my life, and instead of stealing it and using it for myself, I just want to brag on her for a second. Is that okay? She said, I want to have a mother's meeting where we talk about, you know, setting a table. What should I be thinking about? And I said, why don't you look at the first meal of the Bible, Adam and Eve, and why don't you look at the last meal of the Bible, the, the communion meal that Jesus has with the disciples, and just read it a bunch of times until something pops out at you. So we're at the fall festival uh, in Beacon and in October, and she comes up to me all excited, and she's like, hey, I, I, there's something I want to say, but it's, it's pretty, like, it's pretty Bible. And I'm like, this is really good. I'm glad that that's what you want to use. And she said, it's funny because a lot of parents aren't eating at set tables anymore with their children. Is that okay? And she said, Adam and Eve's first meal, the one that destroyed everything, was not at a table. They just reached up and grabbed something. And she said, it's almost like just reaching up into your cabinet and grabbing something and giving it to your kids and walking away. It was haphazard. But she said, when Jesus was going to redeem the meal, he said to his disciples, go into this town and there's going to be a man with a water jar. And he's going to show you a room. And in that room, there's going to be a table. And I want you to set that table up according to the Passover, which putting forks and knives down and some paper plates is nothing compared to all the stuff that they do during Passover. And she said, isn't it funny that the unset table meal destroyed things and the set table redeemed things? And she said, I wonder, hold your applause because this is it. She said, I wonder if sitting at a set table is a better expression of the kingdom of God than haphazard fast meals. I said, let me think about it for a second. No, I'm just kidding. It definitely is. Why was I even talking about that? The children, thank you. Oh my Lord. I'm like, nothing in the world is going to help me figure out why I started that. Stability. Values. Ethics. Morals. The way they hear us talking. The way they see us living. The way some of them see us dating. As a matter of fact, not some of us. If you're here and you're single and you date at all and you're part of the church, you're dating in front of the children, just so you know. I am not saying our morals and values don't matter. I'm saying we have to use them differently than we've used them. We don't use them to browbeat people, and we don't use them to promote ourselves. We use them as a portal of the kingdom of God. And our children need to see it. The way we talk to each other in the home matters. The way we worship in this room with them present matters. They will see you get excited about something you don't need a pastor to tell you it better be Jesus more than anything else. Otherwise, they'll get excited about other stuff and not him also. Yeah. 
My mom and dad will both tell you they, they, they feel like they got a lot wrong. And I don't think that's true, but they think that that's true sometimes. And I'm telling you this. Here's something they got right. They worshiped their buns off my entire life, whatever church they were in, however they were in it, whatever we were going through. We had times when we had money. We had times when we didn't. There were times where there was anger in the home. There were times when things were great. But one thing that really almost never changed was their worship ever. Ever. They worshiped. They praised. It blessed me. Yeah, thank you, Mom and Dad. Christy and Katie, on the other hand, no, I'm just kidding. There is the institutional call of the church, us as an organization, to feed the, to feed the poor and heal the sick and go around. That is 100% true. But there's also a lot of people who hide behind the institutional call of the church to not have to do anything themselves. Hey, you know, the, there's, somebody's got all kinds of leaves on their front lawn, you know. Can the church do anything about this? Maybe, but we're also not a landscaping company, but I'm sure a bunch of people in the church could get together and go rake a little bit. Don't got to call the office to ask permission to do that, by the way. There are things we should be doing. And if you've been here for a while, you know that we're doing more things now than we've done in a really, really long time. But with that said, we need each other as individuals apart from the building called the church. We need to be that skin and bone of the church in our own self and go do stuff for people just because it's part of how you praise and worship Jesus. I say all of that to say this, and I'm not going to read the verses because I do want to respect your time to an extent. But... I want to respect your time to an extent. But in Revelation, Ian, you could put up the chart. In Revelation, when it begins, it says that John saw a door standing open in heaven. That's how the book starts. I saw a door standing open in heaven, and an angel came and said, come up, and I'm going to show you the things that must shortly take place. And he enters the door to receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the end, in Revelation 22... The final thing he sees, he must be standing somewhere around here in the temple. He says, I saw a river of life flowing from the temple, out of the building, into the city streets, and, there was, and it was watering the tree of life on both sides of the river. Not just the right side or the left side, not just the Democrat side or the Republican side, not just the man's side or the woman's side or the black side and the white side. This was watering both sides of the street because that's what the, what side of the street should the church be on the left or the right? The answer is yes. It was flowing out. And it was watering. Like water, floods don't go where it wants to go. Floods go wherever it decides. Like floods end up where you don't want them. No one was like, God, please let my basement get flooded tonight when it rains. Water goes everywhere. And waters everything. Even if you don't want it to. And so should the church. We should go everywhere. And water everything even if it doesn't want us to. But the flow is in for revelation, out for watering. 
And I believe that that cycle right there shows the life of Salem, and it also shows both of these points of emphasis together. We want people coming in. We want people to be brought back. We want families to be restored, and we want them here. Why? Because here is where we receive the revelation of Jesus Christ through worshiping, through scripture, through preaching, through his table, through fellowship, and all those things. We receive the full and complete revelation of Jesus as the church, and then the point of being in here is to leave like a river of life flowing out of us that makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Remember the song? I've got a river of life flowing out of... Somebody help me. Makes the lame to walk. Opens. And then the hand motions like... That's how we're supposed to be. I have a river flowing out of me. Why? Because Jesus is entering me, and he enters me to exit me as a river of life. We come here to leave. We show up here to get out of here different than when we came in. That's why we show up. And we show up to leave differently for someone else, not for ourselves. I come to church because it makes me a better person. You go to church because it changes you to make someone else a better person. That's why we show up here. With all of that said, and I close with this text, this was the lectionary reading for the day. I planned this message in October or November. I revealed it to our leadership at the end of December. Christmas is busy, yo. I didn't get a chance to look at the lectionary text for today until a couple of days ago. And it blew my mind. Here's what was read at every church that reads from the lectern on Sundays. Jeremiah 31, 7 to 14. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them back from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame the pregnant women and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. What? I will bring them back, and not just the ones that used to be part of Israel, but the blind and the lame and the ones who can't see and everyone else is coming back. This was a confirmation for me, just so everybody knows. With weeping they shall come, and, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. Repentance. <laughs> is what increases in us the capacity for people to come back with pleas of mercy. I will bring them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they should not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. He shall restore the hearts of fathers to their children. And Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who has scattered Israel will gather him. And will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed from him the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Over the grain, the wine, and the oil. Otherwise known as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And over the young of the flock and of the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. Why? Because the church has become a river of life that has watered everything. And they shall languish no more. Then their young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. Let's all stand to our feet this morning.
Let's just pray together for a little while. If during the course of this sermon you know who it is, like it's fair and it's okay and it's good, if actual people just popped into your head while we were talking, not just the phantom person that we want to come back that we don't know, but even the people that you do know, Let's just pray and ask God to anoint us to be the kinds of people who wouldn't break a bruised reed like Jesus. If people are going to come back and they're going to have reservations, they're going to have insecurities, they're going to feel like they don't want to be duped by the church, they're going to feel like they don't want to be scammed, they're going to feel like they don't want to get hurt again. We have to be the kinds of people who wouldn't break a bruised reed who wouldn't quench a smoldering wick. Why don't you put your hand on the back of the person next to you? And if you feel like praying out loud with me, pray out loud with me, but I I think we know, especially as Pentecostals, we know how to pray for anointing, yes? Heavenly Father, we pray that your grace would be poured out onto the person to our left and to our right. We pray that you would anoint them for this task of the ministry, to have our hearts cultivated our lives worked on by you to become the kinds of lives who could receive back the broken and the hurt and the frustrated and the angered and the wounded, to bring people into this church that are just getting to know you for the first time and not quench their joy and not stifle their security, but celebrate with them for a while. Let them grow like you grew, Lord Jesus. Let them grow up into Christ before us. I pray, God, that you would give our leaders in this church the wisdom we would need to to live in the balance between doctrine and, and, and actual service and love. Pray that you would forgive us of our sins and anoint us for this task, this emphasis of the ministry, to be a door standing open in heaven. I want Salem, Father God, to be what John saw, a door that is always and perpetually open. And a door that is okay and safe to walk through. I pray that you anoint the person to our left and to our right to have their joy increased into praise, to worship you, to praise you, to give you glory, to assess their lives, to look through their lives and say what needs to be put away and what needs to be taken back out again. And not to feel vulnerable or broken or afraid, but to have joy to repent and joy to live differently and the confidence to fail in that and get back up again and fail in that and get back up again and fail in that and get back up again. I pray that this church would be strong enough to handle the failure of the person to our left and to our right. Not to condemn, not to accuse, but to bear with the failings of the weak and bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And we pray that we would have the self-forgetfulness to reach out to those who will never be able to benefit us in this life the ones that we consider on the side of the road. They're just scamming. I pray that we'd give them dollars this year. The ones who want a sandwich outside of the deli, I pray that they would eat this year. The friends that do nothing but take I pray that they wouldn't be able to take this year because everything's given. 
the people who grind on our patience. I pray that we would walk slower than them this year. The people who take us away from our flow, from our to-do list, from our busy weeks. The people who we would consider to be high maintenance. Give us the grace to team up with people for them this year. To work together in people's lives, not just by ourselves. To have a team around us. So it's not always, can we handle this or shouldn't I? But maybe I can't handle this, but maybe a we can. Pray that we would be brothers and sisters in you, Lord Christ. That church wouldn't just be a function, but it would be who we are as people. That we wouldn't just get together to have fun on the weekends with each other, but we would also get together to serve and love. For official things and, not, and things that are unofficial. That our lives would be church. Our desires would be church. Pray that you anoint this room this year. Pray that when people walk in here, they feel what Jacob felt when he laid his head on a rock. Surely this is the house of God, and I didn't even know. I pray that some of us would have the resurrection of that experience this year. That we would walk in, and when we looked at each other in this room, worshiping, coming to table, we would say, this is the house of God. And I forgot, or have gotten too familiar Make it new again, Father God. Pray that you give us the grace to handle not growth, but the addition of people who need help, who can't help themselves. Provide for us so that we can provide for them. Make a way for us to cut through the politics of the day to be able to serve. Protect your church across the world, Father God, from the politics of the day. That it can continue and thrive this year, not just in New York, not just in the United States, but everywhere. Help it to be safe. And when it doesn't appear safe, give us hope. That when we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we're actually talking about a real thing. Speak to us in this room this year. Give your people gifts, Father God. I'm praying this, Lord God, as the one you've appointed shepherd over this flock. I'm praying that you give the people behind me and in front of me gifts. The gifts of the Spirit, prophecy, wisdom, healing. There's pastors in this room. I'm not going to stop praying for it, Father God. There's missionaries in this room. There's administrators in this room. There's evangelists in this room. There are people in this room, Father God, that cannot get to sleep before they imagine themselves leading other people to Christ. Give us the grace to steward those gifts. Give them the confidence to come forward and, and let us know and give us the grace to be soil where those gifts can grow into positions and callings and offices in the church. Father God, help us to forever live as Eucharistic people, people who look at the world and say, this is the church given for you. 
because it was on the night when you were betrayed that you took bread that resembled us and you broke it and it even more resembled us. And you said, this is now my body, which is broken, not just yours anymore. And this is my blood that is spilled, not just yours anymore. And I've done it for you. Give us the grace to absorb the brokenness of other people like you've absorbed ours. To spill for other people as they've been spilled by others. Heavenly Father, I pray that you continue to fall on gifts like bread and cup and make them for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him because the more you turn these common elements into the sacramental body of Jesus, the more I believe you can do something with me. The more I believe you can do something with the people in front of me. The more I believe you can do something with this church. If you can't transform bread and juice, what can you do? But if you can, if you want to touch something common like bread and juice, I know that we who are fearfully and wonderfully made, you have no problem laying your hands on and making us more than we could ever be for ourselves. And so, Father God, I pray that as we come to your table today, I pray that we would come as people who have our own brokenness and our own spilled realities and our own hurts and pains, and we are going to trust you with them at the table. And then when we leave, we're going to allow our scars and dents and scabs and cuts and bruises speak to a Savior who makes all things new. In your name we pray. Amen. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.